Praise be Jesus Christ. Welcome back to another episode of CarmelCast. Uh, CarmelCast is a production of ICS Publications. For more information, visit our website at icspublications.org. And uh, this episode, I'm, I'm really looking forward to um, because we're right on the cusp of Advent. And Advent is actually my favorite liturgical season. And so this um, this episode, I was hoping to share a little bit about Advent, how it's uh, a particularly Carmelite season, and then end with some kind of practical advice on ways to enter more deeply into the Advent season. And I'm very happy to be joined by Father Pier Giorgio of Christ the King. Hi, Father. How you doing? Doing very well. Ready to talk about Advent and ready to celebrate Advent because it's happening in uh, about a few days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very soon. I know. Sometimes I feel like for these seasons like Advent and Lent that are preparation seasons, I need like a preparation for the preparation. So we're, we're in those preparatory days before uh, the preparatory season of, of Advent. Well, in the monastery, we talk about the proximate and remote pre- preparation for prayer. And uh, so we need we need a uh, remote preparation for the preparation of Christmas. <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. Awesome. Well, I just wanted to jump right in then and, and share maybe a few characteristics that I think um, make Advent a particularly Carmelite season. Um, I'm thinking of three in particular. There's probably a lot more, but three came to my mind immediately. And those three are darkness, silence, and stillness. And I think that we can see these characteristics um, in our practice of Advent and even in the natural world uh, during this time of Advent. So we see that we're, these are like the short, very shortest days of the year and they're getting shorter and shorter um, as we approach Christmas. So we see this sense of darkness kind of uh, closing in around us in, in a very real way. At least in the Northern Hemisphere. And yes. uh, we, we have to get one of our Australian brothers on to, to, to talk about the, yeah. uh, the lack of that experience in right. the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, they have a very different experience of, of that <laughs> and Christmas than we do. Um, yeah, and then connected with that, that uh, just the sun setting earlier, also there's, it tends to be a very overcast time of year. Again, especially in the North. I'm in Boston, you're in Wisconsin. So it really is, uh, you don't see the sun nearly as often um, as as the other parts of the year. So I think, yeah, a, a lot of this kind of the external things and help us to enter, enter into this internal sense of, of darkness. And I'll share a little bit more about what that means um, as well. But then connected with darkness, I think we have also uh, kind of silence and stillness. I really think of um, like the, the soft snow, you know, falling on the ground that just makes everything very, very quiet and peaceful. There's this like really this sense of like mystery about this time of year. I really, I think of the uh, image of kind of, you know, you're sitting by a warm fire and like looking out the window at the snow falling and just how, um, yeah, how quiet and, and peaceful that experience is. I don't know, that, that sums up Advent for me, that, that experience. Yeah, I, I grew up in a very snowy part of the world in upstate New York. And I just, one of my, my fondest memories is that is a reoccurring memory of, you know, the, how the snow muffles the sound and just sort of insulates all the noise in the surrounding area. So you go outside on, in, in the darkness and on a fresh snowfall and it's just so still and it's so quiet. Uh, right. And it, it really is a good metaphor for 
you know, entering into prayer and entering into a season that I think is, is, uh, oriented towards preparation and, and preparation for, for the coming of our Lord and the incarnation. Right. Yeah. And I think that these characteristics, um, darkness, silence, and stillness, they're really, they're, they're meant to lead us into, uh, this sense of longing and anticipation. Um, and I, but but for that to happen, they have to be interpreted in the correct way. So I think that, um, yeah, darkness, silence, and stillness can all be interpreted as like kind of a sad sort of like an empty darkness and silence and stillness. Um, but really what Advent is, it's, it's not that kind of darkness. It's a different experience. And it reminds me of um, St. John of the Cross in the Spiritual Canticle, stanza 15. Um, I'll just read from that. It says, the tranquil night at the time of the rising dawn, silent music, sounding solitude, the supper that refreshes and deepens love. And so we see that this darkness that we're talking about is not the same darkness as in the dark night, um, but it's a darkness that is right on the verge of that rising dawn. So even if the light cannot be seen yet, there's just this palpable sense, like you know that it's coming. Um, and then the silence is not this empty void, but it's this silent music. It's uh, this like tranquil and very a beautiful silence. And then uh, the stillness is not just like a, a boring nothingness, but instead it's um, really like, like a contentment and a deep sense of peace. So I think if we interpret these things in that way, um, it helps us to really to enter into the spiritual realities of this season. Um, that in this way, then yeah, silence, darkness, stillness, they're not really, it's not like a lack of something or an absence of something instead. It's, it's not like a lack of light, a lack of noise or a lack of movement, but instead it's more of this like longing and like hoping for what's to come. Um, but also something that in some mysterious way, like we already possess. And so the word I, I want, I like to use for this is, is a, it's a pregnant anticipation an anticipation that's, it's not empty, but it's like full, almost bursting. Yeah. And it's, a, it's, it's full of meaning. It's, it's, uh, in that anticipation, we know, <laughs> we know how the story ends and, and we know we, we go through this every year, right? So it's, there's, there's a sense of, of the meaning being present, even within the absence. Um, it's sort of like this paradoxical, um, I guess element going on within it because while it's it's it may some people may look at it as as an exercise or you know a tradition or or just something that's purely cultural um but in reality it's it points to the whole mystery of um the incarnation of God entering into entering into the world through the incarnation in a real and human way but at the same time, he's always been present. He's 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 always he's always been interested in what's going on. Um, he's always been loving, and so it's it's this it's this uh, yeah this this sort of mysterious element of of both presence and absence, sort of um, I don't know, bouncing off itself. I don't know what, what the word is, but there's a there's a beautiful sort of metaphor there. I think. Yeah, and it, I think it's particularly Carmelite, and we see this um, 
even in the readings, well, I think especially in the readings during Advent, we see this kind of pregnant anticipation, this already but not yet, this deep longing. So um, especially in, in the first readings throughout Advent, if you'll listen to those, um, you'll hear from the book of Isaiah a lot. And um, you enter into this experience of the Jewish people where they had this deep longing for the Messiah. Um, and and as we get even closer and closer to Christmas, it becomes this like, like yeah, it's, it's so palpable that it's like bursting out, like this experience of God, even though it's still hidden, he hasn't come yet. There's like this uh, overflowing into creation such that all of creation is then like screaming out of, of this uh, desire for the Lord, this great anticipation. Um, and then we see that in the book of Isaiah, but then also as we get closer to Christmas, we get the readings from the Song of Songs for the first reading. And that's, again, it's this like, great desire for the Lord, this longing for him, this seeking him. Um, but it's, it's a seeking that's not it, absent of him. It's, it's a seeking that's so filled with his presence. And yeah, so then th this is the, the, the experience of the Jewish people um, at the time of Jesus. It's the, the Messiah that they've longed for for centuries. And um, yet Jesus hasn't been born yet. He's, he's not yet manifest to the world. And yet he's present in the womb of Mary. So there's this pregnant anticipation um, that I think is particularly Carmelite. It's this great longing to see God, the God that we already possess within our souls. I think, you know, in relation to this season being particularly Carmelite, you know, just as in the prophetic readings that we hear during the four weeks of Advent, um, there's this, I guess, speaking about this reality of, of preparing preparing the way for the Lord and, and preparing an anticipation of the presence of the Lord and correlating that to the Carmelite charism that we've been talking about this season uh, in the second half of all of these episodes, but even in the first episode, that sort of prophetic element of the Carmelite charism of being that in the contemporary world, of being that sign of of preparation for God's second coming, of announcing the presence of God in the world, these Carmelite monasteries of cloistered nuns, you know, what is, what is their purpose? What is their role? And I think it is, it's that, it's that prophetic sign of Christ's presence in the world when even in the midst of, of so much strife, anxiety, um, much as the the people of Israel experienced during the time of the prophets. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the presence of the Carmelite in the world should be this, this almost paradoxical sign of the longing for union with God and yet already possessing it in some way. And through that, then witnessing to others, um, helping others to enter into that mystery. And I think connected to this then is um, I think, one of my favorite things about Advent is that it's such a Marian season. Um, it's, it, it, it really makes me, yeah, I feel like I'm walking alongside the Blessed Virgin Mary during the time of Advent. And um, I mean, besides there's, you know, these, there's these two very, very big Marian feast days 
that take place during Advent every year, Our Lady of Guadalupe, and then the Immaculate Conception. Um, but besides that, even, I think that Mary is just everywhere uh, in the Advent season. And it's really, it's, it's experiencing with Mary this longing for the coming of Jesus. And from this perspective, then, I think that um, this, the darkness, silence, and stillness that we talked about are especially important because they're not just like a clearing out of the clutter or the noise or the busyness or the restlessness, um, but it's doing that so that we can bear Jesus within us with Mary. Our lives become like these wombs so that we can be filled with Jesus. We enter into the darkness, the silence, and the stillness of Advent, um, which gives us the ability or the space to be filled more fully with Jesus. And Mary's a, a, a image of this because her womb is not just an, an empty space, empty for the sake of emptiness, but it's empty um, so that it's filled with Jesus, filled with God. And that's that's our call as well. It's an interesting season in sort of comparison or juxtaposition with with Lent, which which also has that element, but it's you know we know from experience that it's that it's different because the anticipation, the anticipation of the, I don't want to call it the penitential character because I think that's that's I mean Lent is a pen or sorry Advent is a penitential season, but not in the same way that Lent is a penitential season and and Lent is a is a prepper a season of preparation but not in the sense that Advent is a season of, of preparation. Mm-hmm. And there is, there's this beautiful sort of juxtaposition between the preparing for the incarnation and preparing for the resurrection. And um, the idea of, of creation and new creation too, coming into, into being, it's, it's almost like, you know, in the resurrection, we're, we're coming to sort of a finality uh, of a new creation and and it's like uh, the incarnation, the celebration of the incarnation at Christmas, is sort of like the first day of that new creation. It's like the first of the seven days of the new creation uh, that God will bring about. And so it's, you know, what was before creation? It was you know darkness was a was upon you know it was just darkness, right? And so um, to see kind of that, I think I don't know. That's that's sort of the analogy that I'm kind of being drawn to in this as well. Is uh, the darkness being kind of a darkness for it's like that first moment before the sunrise, right? It's that first moment when, 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 um, you know, the night is at its darkest and, and what comes next is that, that pin, that pinprick of, of just radiance that, that shines forth, uh, from that and sort of seeing the rising of the sun, uh, in that analogy as Jesus coming forth and, and growing into his full humanity um, from the moment of his, from the moment of his conception. Yeah. I'm reminded of um, father Pio Giorgio and I actually, we went for a hike a few years ago. Now we <laughs> yeah. hiked up late at late one night and uh, slept halfway up the mountain and then woke up very early and walked the rest of the way, rest of the way to the top to watch the sun come up. Um, and, yeah, there's there's this sense of in the darkness you can you can feel this anticipation for the sunrise that's coming even before you can see any of the light. You know, there's like this. Even the animals know. You know, you start to hear. Everything begins to to feel different in these these moments leading up to the the sun coming. 
and and creation i mean creation is different because god is incarnate you know this this is i think an important element that we maybe lose sight of that you know we don't want to get too much into like changing seasons um or you know times of day and things like that because we don't we don't assign meaning to them in the sense that you know i'm not turning to the horoscopes in my newspapers <laughs> to see what all of this means but at the same time it's it's because christ is present within creation uh, that we can that we can appreciate uh, his presence that that is that is there in the midst of all that and and to understand that it's God who created this it's God who who ushers this in and it's God who's present throughout all of it mm. yeah that's great um so I just want to end then with some very practical advice of like how to have a good advent what does this look like and I think the easy answer which maybe needs to be nuanced. Um, but the easy answer is to avoid celebrating Christmas too early. And this is something that, I mean, our culture just, we hate to wait um, for anything, but especially Christmas, you know, it's like suddenly Christmas music and decorations show up uh, right after Halloween. And then we celebrate Christmas for two months, basically. And then the day of Christmas comes and we're already sick of it. Um, where, yeah, it becomes old and stale such that, you know, December 26th, it's time to take the Christmas decorations down when the reality is the season has just begun. Um, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of the best advent I think of my life was when I first entered the order, my postulancy, I entered in November and, um, I, you know, suddenly I was used to being just so connected with the world um, and here I was in the monastery with nothing to do but pray. And uh, it was just a, a very quiet, dark experience of Advent. And at first I was just, I was kind of bored and restless with it. But then I was really able for the first time to like not have Christmas music, not have Christmas decorations, Christmas desserts, all of these things. And it ended up being this amazing time because then I was so excited for Christmas. Like I couldn't sleep the night before. I was like a little kid again, where I was so excited for Christmas day um, because of this time of like preparation. And um, yeah, I, I realized that, that um, how important that was for me to try to take elements of that and enter, enter it into my life now, which I realize is not practical at all in our lives typically. Like we have to do Christmas shopping and Christmas baking and we have to go to Christmas parties um, and we all have work and school. So there is no like, we can't just like flee all of those things. And, and um, but I think we should do the best that we can. Yeah, I think for me, the, the best advents were, were advents when I wasn't enrolled in classes. <laughs> because, yes. because what happens in advent finals and papers and all that stuff. Right. So it is hard to to disconnect. I think I think too that it's it's a bit of a um, maybe a more Americanized problem. I know I know for my my grandmother is Austrian and um, <clears throat> she tells. I mean, when I was growing up, we'd go to her house during December. There would be no Christmas decorations, and then we'd go to her house on Christmas Eve, and that's that's when like that was what we did on December twenty fourth was was decorate the house. Uh, mm-hmm. So for for you know those you know the, the cultures that have I think a, a better, more Catholic sort of <clears throat> Christmas tradition that exists. That's something that we can maybe appropriate <laughs> for ourselves. I think to um, to maybe you know 
calm down a little bit with with the with the sort of anticipation of Christmas in the sense of decorating for it, you know, yeah. on Black Friday or something like that. I don't know what people do, but I know that that's that's a common tradition at least in this country. Right. Yeah, I think there's a way then that we can. Um, again, we can't cut these things off completely from our life. It's part of our culture and our world, but we can, we can wait some to listen to our favorite Christmas music, wait to eat those Christmas sweets, wait to open any presents, um, all for the sake of making that when Christmas does come, making it really a true celebration and something that you're anticipating and excited for. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but more, I think than like avoiding these things, um, on a practical level, I think that the most important thing for us is to consider how in the little ways we can enter into that darkness, silence, and stillness during the season of Advent. And I think that the primary way that we do that, which Father alluded to earlier, is through prayer. That's really what this Advent time is about. It's about taking time each day to sit in that darkness and that silence and that stillness and just to like feel that deep longing that we have for Jesus, that pregnant anticipation, and just to allow that to grow in us and our excitement for his coming at Christmas. Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. And and there's something, there's something I think unique about this time of year, um, just with respect to the weather and respect to um, the, the less, you know, the longer nights, the shorter days, and the Northern Hemisphere, at least, that kind of lends itself to I think being quieter. I think I think we I think we desire to be quieter this time of year uh, because because uh, our environment is is quieter generally uh, as long as we stay out of the malls. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hopefully that was some helpful uh, reflections on the season of Advent, and now we want to go into an interview um, that we did with a secular order discalced Carmelite. And I'm, I'm very excited for this interview, I think in part because a lot of our listeners are secular order discalced Carmelites, but for those who are not, I'm even more excited because I think this is a, um, an aspect of the Carmelite life that's relatively unknown, that you can be a married person, you can have a family, a career, and yet belong to the Carmelite charism in this way. And so uh, we hope you enjoy this interview with Mike Alley. Hello, Mike. We're so glad to have you here. Um, this is such a blessing to get to have this time of conversation and to hear you share about your vocation as a Discalce Carmelite, uh, as a member of the secular order. So thank you for, for taking this time. It's my privilege. If you wouldn't mind, just maybe briefly introduce yourself uh, for all those who are listening. Okay, certainly. My name is Michael Alley. I have been a Discalce Carmelite for nearly 25 years as a as a definitively professed member. So I have been married for 47 years to my wife. We've had three children of our own, and we have five grandchildren now. Um, I've had a uh, very productive career working in the medical area. I was trained in the Army uh, as a medic. I served in Vietnam. I used to see patients or soldiers up close and, and personal every day when I was in Vietnam. And the blessing that I received when coming back to civilian life was I was able to get a similar job uh, in a hospital doing very much what I did in Vietnam. I had the skills and the training to do it. And so I was able to get a good job 
and I was able to get an advanced education because of that. Yeah, so you're you're able to be be married, then have a family, mm-hmm. um, have a career, and yet you belong to the Discalced Carmelite Friars or the Discalced Carmelite Secular Order. Yes. Um, so could you maybe just explain then briefly what what is a secular order or a third order? Okay. Well, the secular order of uh, Discalced Carmelites is like other secular orders with the Dominican orders of the Church that allow uh, people living in the world and having jobs and everything of of that nature to be able to practice the charism that those orders uh, support. And it's been amazing to me how much growth there has been in the secular order of Discalced Carmelites in the last uh, 20 years that has just blossomed and people have discovered um, how, how important it is to have just a little instruction on how to have personal internal prayer life to support what, what they do at any type of uh, job or family, family setting. It's important to realize that the secular members of the order practice the same rule of St. Albert written back in, in 1208. And that is the same rule that the, the nuns, the priests, brothers, and secular members all practice. But we also have constitutions that define exactly how to, how to put that rule into practice so that we are all able to follow the same life of prayer, but in our, within our own particular uh, way of, of living in a monastery, a convent, or in, in, in homes. And we're, we're blessed also by fraternal communion, as has been recently added to our constitutions. So we better appreciate how the entire process is guided by the Blessed Trinity. Our Lord is the person who is the, is the center of each community meeting. And we, we each derive grace from that community affiliation and association. Uh, we, we learn how to pray for one another in the community. We also use the same approach to prayer to support our families, friends, and others that we know in situations that we become aware of in our day-to-day life where prayer is how we practice our, our charism. Mm-hmm. We are prayers. That's, that is what we, that's what Carmelites focus on uh, no matter if they are uh, nuns, priests, or secular members. Prayer is the central way of life that brings grace to any situation that we encounter. So. Yeah, I think you do, you do a beautiful job of capturing really the essence of what it means to be a Carmelite and that, that prayer really is kind of what's central there and that relationship with, with the Trinity and particularly with Jesus Christ. Yes. Um, I guess I'm wondering then, so I mean, that's something that we all share. That's something that I, I, I practice as a friar and the nuns do as well. But um, what would you say is uh, different about the secular order um, as a secular Carmelite, it's a different maybe lens through which you belong to the Carmelite charism in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you just describe that, the way that you're called to live the Carmelite charism? Right. After entering the Carmelite order in 1991, taking classes and reflecting upon how I engaged in prayer previous to joining the order, I've been praying for a long time. I used to pray for patients that I saw in the hospital in Vietnam, in evacuation hospital, where I went there to draw blood or collect something from them, and I I noticed their situation, 
and I, I couldn't forget it. I just I would take that with me that that day, and I'd pray for them when I went on to do my my job in a laboratory, for example. And the same when I entered the civilian hospital situation, that I had a compassion for people that I encountered there. And while you can't pray with these people when you're on the job, so to speak, you can still capture the the situation and experience what's going on there after the fact, you can recall it and pray about it then mm -hmm. for their good. And I, I discovered that, that is something that I've always done. And I had a chance later after becoming uh, a temporary member in the, the order to have a conversation with Father Michael Griffin, who talked with me about this for quite some time, understanding that that what I had done, I had been guided to do probably by our Lord and the Holy Spirit, even serving in Vietnam, is something that has been a consistent way in which I practice prayer from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've discovered after joining the uh, Carmelite, uh, Viscal's Carmelite Order, and taking classes in prayer and learning about formation and what, what our order is to what secular members are to do, taking the charism of Carmel out into society, how we're really called to practice our prayer for people that we encounter out in the real world, many of whom have no experience of prayer or any type of faith, but they are our brothers and sisters in this, this world, and they need prayer support too. And it's beautiful to hear how God has taken your strengths, your experiences in your life, your situation, mm -hmm. um, and then drawn that in to your, your, the way that you live the Carmelite life. And like you said, it seems that really that is your call as a secular Carmelite is to bring the Carmelite charism out into the world in a, in a way and in places that the nuns and the friars really can't. Um, just speaking in previous interviews with the, the nuns, they, they can talk about being like love in the heart of the church. Mm -hmm. And I think we could see the the friars perhaps being, I don't know if we want to say like the arms or the shoulders of the order, mm -hmm. but really it seems to be the secular order members who can then be the hands or the fingers even and can, can reach out and really share that charism in a very particular way. Besides then kind of taking your experiences in your daily life and then drawing them into your life of prayer, um, how would you say like practically what are some of the practices of that you're called to, um, to to do as a secular order. So, like for example, when we're talking to the nuns or the friars, mm -hmm. you know, we have our hours of prayer and the liturgy, the hours mm -hmm. and our times of community. But what does that look like in your life, in the day-to-day -day life of a secular order, Carmelite? Okay, in day-to-day -day life, I think it there are other avenues that we we encounter because we we go into a workplace, we go into the supermarket, we go to any any particular uh, element of society, and we have, a, we have an experience of it as just regular family members or friends of, of others in, in town. So all secular members are taught how to pray morning prayer, evening prayer, 30 minutes of uh, internal silent prayer per day, and also encouraged to consider um, an examination of conscience and night prayer, if, if you have time in your schedule, as part of your prayer life. The, the, the liturgical prayer life is important, that 
we link our personal prayer time with our Lord to something liturgical. So it's really, it starts by being grounded in our, our practice of prayer life that is liturgical. Yeah. yeah, and then certainly the times of praying morning prayer and evening prayer and those 30 minutes of silent prayer mm-hmm. each day, then those can be um, really the, kind of the foundations of your life as a, as a secular order Carmelite. It's been a wonderful experience for me these years to, to realize that even though I live in the, in the secular world with a family, children, grandchildren, job, um, that I, was, I can still practice prayer as, as guided by our Lord, as St. Teresa of Avila taught at the very outset of, of this order. And it's been a, just a, a remarkable privilege to be able to have time for internal silent prayer with our Lord daily to, for me to explain where I am and what I'm coping with that I need, I need help with. Mm-hmm. And uh, also to bring into prayer at the same time other family members and friends or people that I've encountered during the day that I want to pray for because I understand what they're faced with and they need prayer. And in today's world, very few secular people seem to know even how to pray when they, when they need it. It's been, ver- it's been remarkably um, present during this pandemic situation we're in that people turn to the media, but not to prayer, looking for answers to what they face. So for me, it's been a, a true blessing uh, throughout my time with the order to benefit from times of prayer with our Lord daily. Yeah. It's also struck me that, that you're not a secular discalced, uh, secular discalced Carmelite on your own either, right? Oh, no, uh, no. You belong to a community. Right. And what does that look like? What, how often do you see this community? What is it like when you're together with the community? Okay. So our, uh, our community gathers one, one afternoon per month for formation classes, ongoing formation, actually um, practicing afternoon prayer for the Carmelite meeting, but also personal prayer for what we have brought to the meeting for prayer that we we articulate when we are um, we're having a our group prayer, but there's also a time for silent prayer where after coming to the meeting and hearing what other people at our small groups have had to say about prayer intentions that they they have, we can include those in our in our time of prayer. So we are praying together for one another and often family members of other members as well as situations that people have encountered in their parishes or at their job that need prayer support. And we will, we will pray for that too. About how big are these communities or how big is your community? And do you know in general how big communities Most, most communities um, range in size, probably uh, maybe 10 to 20 members to start with. That's a, that's, a, that's a good number for starting a community. But those communities can grow and those communities can actually uh, migrate and form a new community closer to a parish where more members live so that you can establish additional communities. Mm-hmm. So the community we have here in Frederick was established in 1991 by two professed members that came from Washington, D.C. And it worked out beautifully because our, our first community meeting in 1991 had 11 members from five area parishes. 
And after three years, everybody was in, not only in formation, but temper, had a temporary promise. And uh, then three more years, they were definitively pr professed and could teach the classes and build new communities. So since 1991, we, we became a canonically uh, established community in 1999. And then five years later, we had a group migrate to Hagerstown that were professed, and they brought more people with them to their community there. And then in uh, 2012, another actually 40 people from our original community here in Frederick migrated to a, a parish in Westminster, and they've been thriving there ever since. And yet we attend annual retreats together every summer, and we have other days of recollection during Advent and during Lent, where we still gather having a very, very common bond. In the Washington province, which spans from Minnesota to Maine to Florida, there are 146 OCDS communities within that space. And there are a number of smaller groups called growths, uh, groups in discernment that are forming new communities coming from the original communities that they had in their area. Uh, and there are also, um, there are also uh, OCDS communities in the southern part of, of uh, the United States. They're part of the Oklahoma province. And there are other communities that are in the California, Arizona province that covers the western uh, states in the United States. So there, there are roughly 5,000 members, wow. secular members in, in the OCDS communities in the United States. Mm. And if someone wanted to find out if there was a community near them, do you know of a way that they could do yes. that? So the, um, the main place to ask this question is to uh, go to the website known as OCDS Wash Prov, one word. Uh, that's located in Brighton, Massachusetts. They have a website that um, can send you literature about what it, what it means to be a secular uh, discalced Carmelite uh, person. They have a beautiful vocation brochure. And they also have on file uh, a contact person for every OCDS community in our province. So you can find out if there is a problem, if there is a community near where you live, um, and who to contact to find out more information from from them. Great. And I think uh, that's been a very important uh, resource for uh, new secular members to have to realize that there actually are communities near where they where they work or where they live. Mm -hmm. And with a little, with a brief commute once a month, you can learn the practice of of Carmelite prayer at those communities. Yeah. yeah. Well, what advice would you give to someone who's discerning a possible call to become a discalced Carmelite as a okay. member of a secular order? Okay. What I would recommend is is going to a um, going to a parish near you that has um, Eucharistic adoration and to go there and just have a quiet, private time with our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, asking for His guidance and His, his help 
to find out a better way to practice prayer so so they can better face whatever situation they're finding in life, no matter what it is. And I think that's one place to begin where you are meeting with um, our Lord and Savior in that setting and asking for guidance. And I think he will, he will provide answers to you. Um, you can also ask to speak with uh, one of the Carmelite friars affiliated with our province or any province and ask them the same kind of question if, there's a, if they can recommend somebody that can talk with them by phone or you know, somehow communicate answers to their questions. Yeah, that's great advice. Do you have um, any, is there any particular Carmelite writing that has really made a profound impact on you as a secular order member? Oh, yes. So the, the, first, the first writing that made the biggest impact on me was reading and experiencing The Way of Perfection when reading St. Teresa's book, The Way of Perfection. Learning what the Our Father prayer really can mean if you take time to just pray about each phrase in the Our Father prayer. And that's what Teresa of Avila does for you in that, in that book. But in addition to the Our Father prayer, she describes how to engage what's called the prayer of recollection, which is really a very important uh, mode of prayer that our Lord himself taught her how to practice, that we practice as secular Carmelites, that enables you to um, remain engaged in personal prayer, interior prayer, and not, and not get waylaid by distractions that come at you because we're all human. And whether we're at a job or in a family situation and things are tugging at you every which way. Yeah. yeah. And for anyone who wants to, to know more about the way of perfection, they can uh, check out the book on ICS's website, icspublications.org. Or also, um, last spring, we actually hosted a, a book study, which we recorded audio and video. So if anyone wants to check that out as well, they can see while we kind of go through the book in seven different parts. And um, it's a good way to kind of to dive into the writing of St. Teresa of, of Avila. Yes. So, Mike, thank you so much for this. This has been really uh, a fruitful time to hear about your vocation. Um, if anyone wants to know more about the Secular Order of Discalced Carmelites, like you said, you can visit the website at www.ocdswashprov.org. That's correct. And yes. I'll put a link down below this video. Very good. Thank yes. you very much, Mike. God bless you. Thank you.